0: May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you may have a seat. You may have a seat in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you are visiting us here for the first time, a warm welcome to you. My name is David. I am one of the priests who gets to serve in whatever capacity is needed, and I have the privilege of preaching This morning, for those of you who have been here for a while, a warm greeting to you as well. I have images. Behold. In Homer's epic story, the Iliad, which tells the story of the final weeks of the siege of Troy, there's a moment in the narrative where the hero, Achilles, hears of the death of his friend Patroclus and he bursts into tears. His weeping is so loud, in fact, that even his mother, Thetis, a sea nymph who lives at the bottom of the sea, hears it. For ancient Greco-Roman society, Achilles was this representative figure who embodied not only the virtues of strength and beauty, but also the virtues of one who grieves properly. He was, in fact, his namesake. For those of you who love the Greek language, Achos Laos, the one who bears the grease of his people, Achilles. And as the man who wept with and for his people, he was the paragon of true manhood. Now this, of course, stands in sharp contrast to the mantra of our American culture where boys allegedly do not cry. Like the Stoics of the first century and the rise of the John Waynes in the 20th, a passionless manhood, the sovereign of his emotions, has been repeatedly presented as ideal manhood. But why is it exactly that so many men in our culture fear weeping openly in public? Well, one reason, I think, is that crying makes us fundamentally vulnerable, and it puts us in a place of weakness, which might get us rejected or ridiculed. Now, this is what happened to one of the greatest basketball players of all time. At one point during his 2009 acceptance speech, while being inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame, Michael Jordan started crying. The Associated Press photographer, Stephen Savoya captured this moment, and it eventually became the quote-unquote crying Jordan meme. (laughs) But of all the times that male athletes have been caught on camera crying, which is exceedingly a lot, why this picture? Why did this particular photograph become so infamous? One scholar explains it this way. He says it's the ultimate alpha male in a vulnerable position. Another scholar writes that you have this masculine star who expresses vulnerability and people simultaneously mock it and celebrate it. In becoming vulnerable by weeping in public then, we run the risk, like Jordan, that people will take advantage of us in this place of apparent weakness. And in our need for some expression of sympathetic understanding, we fear the possibility of being rejected, which is, of course, what so many men, and for that matter, women, in our culture fear above all. And yet in Jesus, we witness a very different way of being human, of being a man. When he weeps at the death of his friend Lazarus, which we read about in the shortest of all verses in the New Testament, John eleven thirty five, 35, we witness the vulnerable love of God and the empathetic love of the truly human one. We witness the one who is not only profoundly in touch with our reality, but who also shows us the way of being in touch With the reality of God's unconquerable love. But there's usually a question, I think, that nags at the back of our minds when we read this passage. And that question is this. If Jesus knew in advance that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, why does he cry? Why not just get straight to the business of demonstrating the resurrection power of God? Is he pretending? Is he performing a pantomime for the observers at the time? If he's God, just be God. Omnipotent, omniscient, impassible. Isn't that the most effective way to show the glory of God? Lazarus is dead. Raise Lazarus from the dead to life, all glory to God. Now, these are actually questions that have haunted theologians for centuries. But what I'd like to suggest to you here this morning is that Jesus weeps not, in fact, as a concession to the humanity of his observers, but because it remains consistent with the character of God to become vulnerable with those whom he loves. It's not that crying belongs to his humanity and the manifestation of the glorious power belongs to his divinity. It's rather that weeping in this way is, as it were, the most natural thing for God and Christ to do under the circumstances. But it raises the question, in what way exactly is vulnerability on display in Jesus' weeping? Let me suggest to you three ways we see vulnerability at play. First, in physiological terms, when you and I have a good cry, our bodies break down, as it were. Our eyes leak tears, our shoulders droop, our cheeks puff out, snot runs down our nose, our stomach contorts, and we become physically defenseless for a moment. Our brains, under the circumstances, willingly yield to our body's need to let it all out. It is, if I may suggest to you, a wholly unself protective action. In sociological terms, the act of crying makes us vulnerable to our very acute need of other people. It's what happens when I see my son Sebastian crying because he has knocked the fool out of his toe racing into the dinner table. He needs me desperately, and I instinctually, by instinct, I reach towards Him. It's also what happens with crying teenagers, or crying spouses, crying athletes, crying mourners. We naturally, by nature, want to lean towards them. In more specifically theological terms, vulnerability is what marks the entire life of Jesus, At his birth, he becomes vulnerable in the form of exceedingly fragile infant flesh. Throughout his ministry, he allows himself to be handled and manhandled, caressed and wounded, cared for, but also abandoned. And on the cross, Jesus is stripped naked and stretched out for all to see. It really does not get more terrifyingly vulnerable than that. All you have to do is imagine yourself in that condition. In the case of our passage today, Jesus allows himself to go into the depths, to borrow the language of Psalm 130, in order to fully feel Mary and Martha's grief. And in breaking down, crying, he lets himself become susceptible to the heartache of others. Let me also point out, an important fact that may escape our notice if we read too quickly. And it's this. Jesus never apologizes in this moment for crying. How many of us have found ourselves bursting into tears for whatever reason, and our first instinct is to apologize? I'm so sorry. Jesus doesn't apologize, nor is anyone on the scene embarrassed or ashamed of him. For his public display of tears. And I ask, would that we were so free, like Jesus, to be that way with one another? The basic theological point is this Jesus does not fear the way that vulnerability makes him weak for love's sake, because God's weakness, as you already know, is always a form of true strength. Now, as a kid growing up in Guatemala, as you can imagine, I played soccer. Football, as the rest of the world knows it, I played it for breakfast, lunch, dinner, in between, and then some. And on the playing field, two emotions prevailed, complete ecstasy and abject sorrow, sometimes in close proximity to one another, and crying, as was often the case, was not only normal, it meant that you were fully alive while playing the beautiful sport. And the emotional vibrancy of the Latin American culture that was mine as a child was the only world that I knew. It was the normal world as a child for me. And at 13, as you've heard me say before in sermons, our family moved to North Shore Chicago, and I entered a slightly colder world where crying as a boy was definitively not cool. It was not cool on the soccer field. It was not cool at school. It was not cool anywhere. And by the end of eighth grade, I had been ridiculed so many times for crying like a baby that I swore to God I would never get caught crying again. I resented my tears because of how they made me feel in front of others, and so I shut them down. By the time I reached college, I had successfully cauterized my capacity to cry in the moment. I also happened, ironically, to find myself angry a lot. The shame that I had experienced as a 13-year-old had metastasized into a kind of rage that boiled just beneath the surface. And usually, as you can imagine, my family and close friends experienced the brunt of my bad moods and the outbursts of chaotic emotions. By the end of my 20s, I could no longer access a deep part of my heart. I had become estranged from it. Look as I may, I couldn't find it. And in desensitizing this part of me, I had lost the capacity to sense the emotional pain of others. I could analyze it, I could diagnose it. I could pastorally help other people process it. But I couldn't actually be present to it in my own body because my body had lost its capacity to feel with others. Thanks be to God, that is not the way of Jesus. Jesus is the one who always allows himself to be touched, both literally and figuratively, by the pain of others and in this way to communicate the vulnerable love of God. He weeps with and for others because he is, in the strictest sense of this term, the passable one, in the sense that he is the one who feels with and for us. So this then is the second thing that we witnessed about Jesus here. He weeps for Mary and Martha and the rest because that is how God meets us in the depths, empathetically, close by. Jesus weeps not merely because it represented the way that grief in an ancient Mediterranean world was a public and shareable good, which is no doubt at play, but I, I don't think that's what the gospel writer is trying to convey in this story. Jesus recorded weeping because this is precisely what it looks like for Jesus to be Emmanuel, the God who is with us, This is, in fact, what with-us-ness looks like in meaningful physical form. Jesus lets himself be fully moved by the sorrow of Mary and Martha, and in this way he moves towards them. He allows himself to be troubled in spirit, as verse 33 says, and in this way he lets himself be troubled on their account. He lets himself be bothered, bothered by their emotions, and how many of us dread being a bother to others. But Jesus lets himself be bothered by their emotions, and in this way he lets himself be bound up in their sorrows. Their grief becomes his business, because that is the business of the God who remains with us, near us, for us, always inclined toward us. Many of us, unfortunately, as Americans, do not wish to make a scene by crying in public. But Jesus understands that this is precisely the scene upon which we will witness vividly what it means for him to be our sympathetic priest, as Hebrews 4.15 describes him. He's not a superhuman high priest to whom our weaknesses are unintelligible, as the translator J.B. Phillips puts it. He's the one who feels our weaknesses from the inside and thus chooses to feel our weaknesses with us. This, I think, is what the Gospel of John is trying to tell us very clearly what it means to be human. If you want to know what it means to be human at any point in human history, in any culture of the world, there is one icon who shows us, and it is Jesus. Now, what's fascinating to me is how scientists come along and help us to understand how God has wonderfully, fearfully designed our bodies to be empathetically responsive to one another through the shedding of tears. As scientists explain it, we have lacrimal glands for three reasons. Here's your science lesson for today. Tears keep our eyeballs lubricated. Lubricated, They protect us against infection and they serve to communicate pain to others. Now in this third use, the survival of our species, scientists explain, is directly related to our capacity to remain immediately responsive to conditions of pain in others. Scientists talk about how crying activates that part of the brain which they have nicknamed the social brain, that processes nonverbal communication which amounts to about 90% of meaningful communication between human beings. The neurologist Michael Trimble explains in his book, Why Humans Like to Cry, how crying is what he calls a somatically and emotionally competent stimulus. And that's just a technical term to say that physiology and relationality work beautifully coherently together. And guess who invented that coherent, beautiful relationship. As a visceral form of communication, then, crying is a manifestation of physical passions for the sake of, you guessed it, compassionate response. Emotion, on this understanding, is all about motion. It moves us towards others and, in turn, invites others to move towards us. Tears, then, are not, as many in our North American culture might suppose, a lack of so-called manly strength. They're a God-designed sign of physical vitality and relational health. They're the way that we get to say to one another viscerally, I see you. I hear you. I'm here. I am here. And when tears are absent, something fundamentally human is lost in our ability to be with one another. The country singer Faith Hill captures this frustration that many in our society feel in her 2002 song, Cry, with a chorus that goes like this. Could you cry a little? Lie just a little. Pretend that you're feeling a little more pain. I gave, now I'm wanting something in return, so cry just a little for me. And when I hear this song, it makes me wonder, what are we missing in our gathered worship as God's people when we find ourselves tempted to hide our tears from one another? Now, what Faith Hill sings about is actually what my blessed wife, Phaedra, has wanted of me for years. She's wanted to to see that I am actually with her rather than sitting across from her impassively, arms crossed, trying to figure out for the hundredth time how to fix this problem so that our parents can get better in some quantifiable way. <laughs> She's wanted me to be present to her, not just by saying the right things and God knows I know how to say right things, but by being physically responsive to her in the moment Well, guess what? I finally plucked up the courage this past spring to tell her why it was so hard for me to be physically present to her in my moments of sadness. And it came down to this. I was afraid of her. I told her that I was afraid in a very deep, visceral way that if I let myself feel my need for her, by feeling, showing sadness, by crying, and thereby by being weak, that she would take advantage of me in my moment of weakness and say or do something hurtful to me. And as God is my witness, I was not going to go through that again. Friends, that is after 15 years of marriage, which is a heck of a long time to wait to have that conversation with somebody that you truly love. And it just proves how clever the heart is at figuring out how to manage things in order to keep our fears at bay and to prevent as much pain from entering in. But here's the other thing it proves. You can teach an old dog new tricks. It's never too late to ask God to help your heart to be vulnerable, to be soft, to be pliant to the work of his spirit. So I cry just a little bit more easily these days. I have cried in front of my students at Fuller Seminary, and I have a former student of mine here, Andrew, who actually witnessed me crying. I was reading a book about adoption. Uh, it was a story, uh, a storybook, a feature of the story of adoption, and we had yet to adopt our son, Sebastian. And I was reading, I was fine until the middle, and all of a sudden, boo-hoo-hoo. I just lost it. I was like, oh, wow, there, there's that. Um, I cried at, at, when I was speaking at the diocesan convention, at the Diocese of Christ, Our hope, which is there on the East Coast. And I was, this was actually, I was telling the story of Sebastian's adoption. And I found myself so happy that I just started crying. I sometimes cry when I watch Bluey because it's a very sweet, sweet show. <laughs> and I actually cry a lot when I hear people vulnerably share stories of God's rescue in their lives. I just, I find that so deeply moving. Now, this isn't to say that I don't still get scared to cry in public. It's still scary to face the possibility of rejection, and it's really scary to figure out how to trust somebody on the other side of that rejection. For brothers and sisters, I am far more at home in my skin And maybe it's taken me a long time to get to this place, but I feel so free and relieved. Like there's a version of me that is truer than anything that I had ever been able to imagine. I remember actually, this is not my notes, but uh, 20 years ago at a church where I was a pastor, uh, after the service, we had prayer ministry and two friends came up and prayed. Maybe I've told this story before, but one of my friends put her hand on my heart and she said, there's a true David inside here, and we would love to see him. And I was like, wow, that's, uh, <laughs> that's I, I don't know how to get him. I lost him at 13. But, you know, please pray for me, which is what we're going to do for each other today. Okay. <laughs> All right. Let, let me be clear about my point. My point is not to get you to cry. Like, I am, but I'm okay. Um, crying is good. Crying is healthy. God made tears and tear ducts. But that's really secondary to the passage here. More primary is I want you to have a real encounter of the vulnerable love of God. So here are my questions. Um, I I don't have to explain. I'm not going to apologize. But when you live long enough, you just encounter so much loss. And then it can make you harden or it can make you soften and Thankfully, I'm more on the soft side, and so, you know, there's nothing abstract about this. So here we go. Here are my questions. What if Church of the Cross became a place where vulnerability was shared and cherished because you so fully believed it was one of the most Jesus-like ways for us to be with one another? What if Church of the Cross got a reputation for being a place where people were free to be transparent with each other because we so resolutely believed that God's strength was truly made perfect in our messy, messy, embarrassing, at times, weakness. Allegedly embarrassing. What if Church of the Cross were the place where people wept with those who wept precisely because we really, truly believed as the Gospel of John is encouraging us to do over and over again, and as Jesus tells us in Luke 6, that the blessedness of the kingdom of God is found in such an exchange of tears. And what if when guests visited our small groups and our children's ministry and our missional ventures, they encountered the empathetic love of Jesus in and through you? Because I promise you, there are a lot of people in your extended family or your neighbors or in the world at large who will not encounter the empathetic love of Jesus except through you. Achilles, in the end, may have been the great hero of Greek mythology because he bore the griefs of his people, but Jesus, as the Latin puts it, is the Salvator Mundi, the savior of all peoples. Why? Because he bears all of our griefs and he makes all of their griefs and our griefs his own. He takes our shame and transmutes it into honor. He shares our weakness and transforms it magically into strength. He enters into our pain and transfigures it into something beautiful that you could not imagine possible. He penetrates to the depths of our neediness and our emptiness and our heartache and our loss and our despair and our depression. And he draws us up into the heart of God where we might experience the fullness of his indomitable love. It cannot be overcome, brothers and sisters. And this is the Christ who offers his wounded hands and side to you this day in order that you may know that you are never alone or abandoned in your hour of need. And by his Holy Spirit, he chooses you and me wonderfully, terrifyingly to be his hands and feet and eyes and ears and mouth and tears to become the tangible grace of God to one another. And all I can say is, may it be so, by God's grace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.